This is Bob Morris in Desert Horticulture. Today I want to talk to you about yellowing in plants growing in desert soils, transplanting sago palm, and transplanting rosemary into containers. This and more on Desert Horticulture. Learn more about Desert Horticulture by signing up for my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert. That's all one word, Extreme Horticulture, and starting with an X. Take some of my classes on Eventbrite if you're in the Las Vegas area. That's Bob Morris on Eventbrite. If you follow me on uh, in the newspaper, or if you follow me on my blog, you'll know that I'm a strong proponent of amending desert soils with compost, some sort of organic matter, uh, with certain types of plants. A question I get asked a lot is whether a certain plant, they'll mention it by name, needs amendment or not. Keep in mind that soil amendments are needed by all plants. It's just that the desert plants, the plants that originate from the deserts in the world, usually require a lot less of that amendment. But when you are when you have a soil that's being manufactured by a builder or a developer and used as what they call fill in landscapes around homes, and you'll find all sorts of junk that they've thrown in in your soil if you start digging around. These soils need to be amended or replaced or whatever. You don't know until you start digging around. First question, what's wrong with my plants? The leaves are all yellow and starting to burn up. And uh, I couldn't see exactly which the plants were. They sent, This individual sent me a picture. It looked like it was either Photinia or or mock orange or Tobira's the Wheeler's Dwarf. Or, I wasn't sure because it was so mangled by whoever was doing the pruning with the hedge shears. Don't get me started on that topic because that really irritates me. Once they start pruning them like that, the shape is ruined and it's difficult. It's difficult to really say what the plant was perhaps when it first started. It could be very confusing. But anyway, regardless of that fact, this plant that was, the picture of this plant that was sent to me was yellowing, starting to yellow. It was badly mangled by whoever was doing the pruning. So I'm encouraging you to look, if, if possible, try to look where these plants originated. If they originated out of Japan, Korea, China, most of China, not all of China, but most of where the plants that are harvested from, when they do come out of China, are not coming from deserts. I haven't, I've never heard of the great desert of Japan or the great desert of Korea. There are some desert areas in China, usually in the far west, western part of China, closer to the stand countries over in that area. There are some really dry areas out there, and it's possible to get some plants from those areas, some landscape plants. But generally speaking, if they come out of Japan, Korea, or China, and they originate, they're not going to be desert adapted, usually. 
They're not desert adaptable. So that means that we have to be very careful how we amend the soil at the time of planting. And then, not only that, realizing that the organics that we put in a soil, some are better than others, but those organics that we put in the soil to amend it slowly start to dissolve or decompose over time. And anywhere from three to five years after planting, if they're not renewed in some way, if they're not added to that basic pool of organic material, and it's starting to disappear from that soil, from that fill that was put in that property or a desert, native desert soil, then the soil will begin to collapse. It, the, the open spaces that surround the roots will begin to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And when these spaces, we call them pore spaces, become very small, they can hold a lot of water, a lot more water compared to the amount of air that's in them. Because roots of plants are different than the tops. We're all taught in school that the tops of plants that are green uh, manufacture their own energy source through sunlight. That sunlight, the energy from sunlight is converted to a chemical energy, sugars, that are easily transportable inside the plant. And roots don't have that. They rely on the stored sugars from the leaves in order to, in order to survive. They, that's their energy source. They don't, can't manufacture their own. So roots that are below ground are different than the tops of plants. The tops of the plants, because of the sunlight, they, and because of photosynthesis, they give off oxygen and take in carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide is a source of the carbon that's used to build that energy transport that I talked about. And the roots then are different than the tops because they don't, they don't give off oxygen and take in carbon dioxide. They're exactly opposite. They're more like us, animals. We give off carbon dioxide and we take in oxygen in a process we call respiration. We have the same process going on in roots of plants. We have respiration not the photosynthetic process that we talked about, that I just talked about. So the roots require oxygen in the soil. They have to have that oxygen. And as that organic material decomposes and disappears from the soil, and those pore spaces begin to collapse, their ability to take in that's available to them, the oxygen that's available to them in the soil is very, very limited. And if we're relying on water, irrigation, to fill those soils with enough water so that the plant can survive, then we end up with a very small amount of oxygen in the soil, a lot more water in the soil. The plants become suffocated they suffocate because of a lack of oxygen and so much water in the soil, that and drainage slows down. the The drainage of that water from that soil slows down, and those plant roots begin to die. And one of the indicators of plant root death is yellowing. 
It's very similar to the yellowing that we see due to a lack of minor elements like iron, for instance. But if roots begin to die, their ability, if you want to call it that, to take up these minor elements like iron isn't there anymore. They don't have the capacity to take up enough of those minor elements and supply it to the tops of plants. So the plants begin to yellow. The yellowing that we see is in the new growth, not in the older growth. That's minor element chlorosis or yellowing. So what we need to do, one of the problems that we have is when we take non-desert plants, we put them, we plant them, we go ahead and plant them with a soil amendment that fluffs up the soil, gets some oxygen in the soil, allows for drainage to occur, and then that stuff disappears. And we cover that soil at the time of planting with rock because desert landscaping. We want to comply with desert landscaping. So the surface of that soil is covered with about two inches of rock. The rock does nothing, absolutely nothing, to building that soil and providing the aeration in that soil that plant roots need in order to survive. Plants that are from deserts are used to having soils that have low organic content. So their ability to survive those types of soils is much better. Much does, It doesn't mean they like it. It just means that they're capable of surviving in those kinds of soils. They're adapted to those soils. So now, what do we need to do? Well, if, if the plant is so far gone because of whack jobs done by landscapers that don't know how to prune, and they use a head shears, if it's done for several years and the plant's starting to yellow, it's going to take tremendous effort and years to get those plants back in shape. You might as well pull them, get rid of them, and put new plants in, and in this case, put in desert-adapted plants. If you're going to cover the area in rock, then let's use desert-adapted plants. Go to the nursery, go to your supplier, and tell them what you're looking for. If they can't help you, and if they don't know what a desert plant is, and they start taking you again back to Photinia and Mock Orange, oh, they'll survive, don't worry about it. Baloney, don't listen to them. You, They're right for about the first two years. They, And they survive nicely. But it's after that that they start to go downhill. And look, those landscapers... I, I sit here, we have an HOA, I sat here and watched these guys trim plants with a head shears, with a gasoline-driven head shears, when the plant didn't need it at all. They're doing it because they're told to do it. They have to spend a certain amount of time on the property. They have to be able to charge you by doing that. So instead of picking trash, which is much more important, and these guys don't know how to prune, they're just hired if they can make a straight line with the head shears... That's all that they care about. They care that that plant is, looks like a gumball or a box when they're finished with it. That's all they care about. That's most of the landscape companies. Not all of them, but most of them do. So what do you do? What's the other option? You can put in the plants that are non-desert adapted. We call those plants mesic plants as opposed to xeric plants. X-E-R-I-C is xeric, meaning dry or drought. Mesic is M-E-S-I-C. Those are plants that come from wetter climates and better soils. So if we're going to 
we've, if we're going to keep these plants and we want to green them up, we can spray them with an iron solution on the leaves multiple times to get them to green up. Hopefully that will work. We can apply in January or February an iron EDDHA, EDDHA chelate iron to the soil. Why do I specify EDDHA and not some of the other chelates that are out there? Because EDDHA chelate, iron chelate, will perform in any type of soil that you've got, any alkaline soil that you've got. Doesn't matter. You get some of the other iron products, and it really depends on what the soil alkalinity or pH is. If it's above 7.5, 7.6, uh, many of those will no longer work in those types of soil. So the iron chelate, EDDHA, is the one that you want to look for if you're not sure of the alkalinity and the soil pH. You can put that down. You can pull the rock mulch away from the plants and instead put it wood chip mulch down or something that will decompose. I would suggest putting a layer of compost on the surface, about an inch thick, and then cover that compost with wood chips mulch instead of rock. And how far do you pull that rock away? I would pull it back three feet from the plant. If it's a, if it's a tree that's yellowing, and it's a small tree, then pull it back four or five feet and put down rock, uh, put down wood chip mulch. But you want to try to cover the area under the canopy of that plant minimally, and minimal the area under that with some sort of something that will decompose when it hits wet soil and add something back to the soil and rebuild it again. What you're going to see in those areas when you use this type of wood chips instead of rock is you're going to see earthworms starting to thrive where they never throw, and you never put it in. You just wonder, where the heck did they come from? But they're there. You see a rebuilding of that soil. Instead of tearing it down with rock mulch, you see it starting to recover. You see it starting to improve. You see it starting to turn from a, a tan color to a brown color and even a black color in two and three years after you apply it. But anyway, try to learn the difference. I'll try to post something for you on landscape plants that are currently being sold by the locally, and I'll categorize them for you. But generally speaking, all plants do better if the mulch covering the soil surface is organic and it decomposes rots, basically, and contributes back to that soil again and improves it. Even the desert plants like it. So your choice on what you want to do, pull them out, replace them, put something else in, start small, buy the smallest you can, and put it in, replace it, and go from there. I'm sending you pictures of the sago palm I transplanted. The top ring of fronds died after I transplanted it, but remain on the plant. I left this brown ring of fronds around the crown of the plant and it looks like new growth is coming from the center and it's okay. Should I trim off the dead fronds, the brown ones, without disturbing the crown or just let them fall off? In this case, it's, a, it's really an aesthetic choice. It doesn't really, to the plant, it won't make a whole lot of difference. But if you're looking at it and it looks ugly, 
then remove them. Remove these brown fronds or yellow fronds. You can, if they're yellow and not brown yet, you can spray them and try to get them to recover. But generally speaking, not generally speaking, those fronds will be present for years to come. If they're damaged, if they're brown, they're going to be there for a long time. It's better if you just remove them, clip them real close to the crown without damaging that center portion of the plant, remove them, and let the new growth come out darker green. Amend that soil with compost. This sago palm, sago palm is not a desert plant. So it needs soil amendment and should have the soil covered with wood chips, organic amendments, rather than uh, rock. Don't put them in rock. They're going to perform, although they will perform in full sun, they perform better in eastern sunlight where they get a little protection from the afternoon sun, that intense desert sunlight. But they will take full sun if the soil is prepared and they're irrigated properly. They'll, they'll handle it. But this call is really yours. What you want to, The other option you can have, you can spray paint them, or you can paint them with a green paint used for plants. It's either a, a latex paint or it's a dye that's applied. It's usually applied to lawns. Don't get the marker stuff. There's two stuff out there. There's a marker that's a bluish green. Don't get that. You'll want to get a plant paint. You can search for it lots of different places. But you can paint them green if you want to. Uh, it will wash off. It will disappear over time and then repaint it again. Some people do that. I have a cactus I bought as a start from a little nursery in 29 Palms that grew a foot a year for the last 15 years. It finally tore out of the ground, fell over, causing the ground to quake. It towered to 17 feet, and it was spectacular. The cactus had no water supply, but was irrigated by water runoff from the roof. Well, that's your key right there. Desert plants, cacti in particular, have, when they're in the native, when they're in the wild, grow extensive roots outward, and usually within the top few inches of the soil. It does that so that they can try to pull that rainfall, as erratic as rainfall is in the desert. When that rain falls, they're in competition with all the other desert plants to take up as much water as they can as quickly as possible. And desert plants convert that water into new growth or flowering or both. Very, very quickly compared to mesic plants, the xeric mesic, right? Remember? So uh, you can just remember when you're irrigating desert plants, irrigate them far away from their trunk. When you're first getting them established, it'll be important to apply water close to the trunk. That's where the roots are. But you'll want to spread that water outward as that plant catches. You'll see it catch because you'll see some indicator by the plant that that it is getting established. Perhaps new growth, a change in color, something, there'll be an indicator. So look for that. And when you see that 
start moving your irrigation water, include irrigation water that's further from it. If you know it's going to be a big plant, a big cactus, it needs physical support. Putting it in the, where the runoff is from the gutter is great, but it's very limited in scale, its scope. It's very close to that plant. So the roots are going to develop. Roots, plants are lazy. They take water. First of all, they pick water. That's the cleanest possible water. That's usually the freshest water. Doesn't have a lot of minerals in it unless it's got some form of fertilizer. And they'll take that up, and that's where the roots grow because that's where they know they can get an abundance of water. So if a downspout, downspout from a roof is feeding water to that plant, the roots are going to grow massively in that area. They're not going to extend themselves wide from the plant unless they have a reason to go in that direction. So putting a large cactus close to a downspout is not a good idea. Smaller ones, probably okay if it's not really, we don't get a lot of rainfall. An occasional downpour like that is good for a, a cactus, but not not where it's going to be constantly wet. And it's the same true, true of irrigation. We want to irrigate cacti and most succulents, cacti are succulents, succulents are not always cacti. But we want to expand that watering outward occasionally, get that roots expanded so that when it does get tall, it's got support underneath it. If those roots are real tight and close to it, when it gets tall, it's going to fall over. It just doesn't have the support. And that's one of the important things about roots. It's not just to take up water and nutrients. It's there as a physical support of that plant during winds and whatever, its own weight. So get that water applied. One thing that you could do at times of the year when our biggest problem with soils, with, with desert landscaping, is weeds, weed control. And one of our worst problems in the desert southwest is common Bermuda grass. It's spread by seed easily, spread by small parts. If it's taken from one area to another, it's easily spread. And that growth period of common Bermuda grass, common Bermuda grass loves the heat. It loves the full sunlight and the heat. So at those times of the year when soil temperatures are warmer and you've got lots of sunshine, you don't want to put on a lot of water or you're going to get Bermuda grass growth. So if you're going to irrigate cacti, irrigate, you can use the end of a hose, spray that soil around it, maybe a couple, two or three times during the summer, but no more than that because you don't want to keep it wet enough where Bermuda grass is going to start to grow. You'll want to, if you're going to apply the water, the best time is during the winter months when it's colder and Bermuda grass hasn't got a chance to establish itself during that. And also keep in mind, Bermuda grass loves full sunlight. It doesn't like shade at all. Can't survive in shade. So if we're going to apply that water to get the roots of a, of a large cactus wider, then do it with the end of a hose. Spray those areas. Get it down two or three inches deep. You don't have to get it deep so that you can encourage 
root formation further from the plant to give it some structural strength so it doesn't fall over. Does that make sense to you? I hope it does. But do it during times of the year and frequency that doesn't encourage Bermuda grass. If you see Bermuda grass, take care of it right away. If it's starting to grow, get out there, get rid of it, spray the top of it, kill the top repeatedly. You can starve it out that way or you can hoe it out or burn it. I like burning. So I have a, I have a, I use propane and I burn it down to the ground one of the techniques I have. I transplanted a dozen rosemary from the planters in front of my house into pots to see if I could salvage them. I know rosemary likes full sun, but I'm curious if they could use some shade because of the shock of transplanting. The whole idea of shade, particularly in the desert, is very intriguing and very important. Shade and putting plants in shade at the proper timing is very important in horticulture in general. It's one of the techniques you learn in the nursery trade is that when you have plants that are transported from a climate that is much more forgiving, like coastal California or a wetter climates, and then you move those plants into a desert environment where it's hot, dry, lots of sunlight, it's important to go ahead and move those plants for a few weeks, two or three weeks, into a shadier area so they can what we call acclimate. They can adjust to their new home. So that's very important in the nursery trade. It's not done. At least the retail nurseries that I've seen don't do it. But when I was in school and we were practicing nursery management, studying it and practicing it, it was a very important concept. We built what were called lath houses, L-A-T-H-E, lath houses, and because they were called lath houses, because they were made out of lath. You'd put up the structure to support a roof, and then you would tack on lath on the top. If you wanted 50% shade, you would put lath up there because it was relatively inexpensive. You would put one down, skip one, put another one down, skip one, put another one down. That gives you 50% shade. If that's too much shade, and that's typically what we look at, is about 50% shade when we're acclimating plants to a desert environment. When you're buying tomatoes, you're buying transplants, stuff you're going to put in your garden, or if you're growing them inside the house, very important to acclimate those plants for two or three weeks prior to planting them. So we move them out into the garage. We don't plunge them immediately into full sun. And oftentimes in transplants at nurseries, you'll see them under partial shade. Well, they just came from the greenhouse. That's where they were grown. And the greenhouse is a very protected area. Very little wind, lots of sunlight, higher humidity, and now they're going into your yard, into your raised beds, into your landscape. That's a pretty <laughs> a pretty severe place to put them, to plunge them all of a sudden. It's nice to have a gradual transition from the greenhouse or coastal California or a wetter, more humid environment into a desert environment. Get them under some shade first, acclimate them, 
get them adjusted to their new environment, and then plunge them in. You know what we used to use when I was uh, much, much younger? We used to use those those large coffee cans. We'd, we'd go and collect those large vegetable containers, cans, and we'd one end was already removed because they had emptied it, flush it out, wash it out, and then open about 95% of it, open the other end, and then take that lid and push it upwards. And when you put a tomato in the ground to acclimate the tomato or a transplant, a new transplant, we'd orient that, that can so that raised lid was facing south and create a little bit of shade and a little bit warmer environment until it caught. We'd keep it on there until, oh, probably three or four weeks before we removed it. And that gave you enough time, transplant. We don't see that anymore. You don't see a lot of those larger tin cans around anymore either. We used to use those for nursery containers. (laughs) And we'd have to have what was called can cutters. For those of you that are old enough to remember, can cutters, another topic. Uh, To open up the can, when when somebody came in to buy plants, you'd run the can cutter down the side and you'd give it to them. Another long story. But anyway, get them acclimated in some way before you move them into their new home. Drip irrigation, when you're irrigating these plants, irrigate them at first every day. Get that soil moist until those roots, until that soil collapses around the roots. The roots are staying moist and they're generating new roots. You'll see it on the top. The top of the plants will start to respond. They'll start some new growth. You know you've done it. Then start backing off. Backing off with the frequency of applied water. Go to every other day. Then every third day. Try to go as long as you can. Supplement water with a hose for the first couple of weeks until they catch. But anyway, transplanting is always a good idea uh, to have that transitional period. Another technique technique we use when we move plants from the uh, raised beds or soils landscape into containers is a technique we call as root pruning. Those of you that practice bonsai know what I'm talking about. That's a technique that's used to keep plants smaller in the bonsai uh, management arena. Root pruning. If you're going to move a plant, first of all, move it or move it into a container, first of all, you're more successful with the younger plants. If it's over three or four years old, your chances are going to be slimmer to have a a successful move. It's still possibly, it's doable. You just have to be careful. One of the things that we do is if we're going to, first of all, we root prune it. As soon as we do, uh, root pruning is taking a, a shovel, a sharp, make sure it's sharp, make sure it's clean, and cutting those roots with that shovel by pushing it in the soil as deep as deeply as we can all around that plant, wherever we're going to take that root ball, wherever we're going to take all those roots and with that soil and move it, that's where we're cutting those roots. But we try to leave it in the ground for an extra year before we move it because we want new roots to form behind the cuts. And roots will do that. You'll cut them by root pruning with a sharp shovel. 
and they will create new roots within that area that hasn't been touched, hasn't been cut off. And that improves your chances of moving them. The second thing we do is remove the top growth, the top of the plant, by one-third. Usually those are entire shoots that are removed rather than just going around and pruning and giving it a butch haircut by going around and just pruning everything back. That's not the way to do it. What you'll want to do is, there could be, if there's some long shoots, real long, go ahead and cut them back. But generally speaking, we're looking for some of that older growth and removing about one-third of all the leaves. So because we're losing so much of the roots, we want to reduce the amount of leaf growth that those roots have to support when they're cut. So we're root pruning, then following that by reducing the top of that plant by about one-third with what we call, uh, with rather than what we call heading cuts, butch haircut type cuts, we are removing entire branches, thinning cuts, we call it. Uh, do that root pruning, and you'll improve the chances of success when you move it. Try to give it as much time as you can for new growth to establish new roots behind those cuts if you're root pruning. Otherwise, you're on your own. You'll see what happens. Well, I hear that music. It's time to go. I hope this information was helpful to you. I hope it gave you some ideas. Let me know. Thanks for joining me, Bob Morris, on Desert Horticulture.